what is going on guys welcome back to another video and let's get into it starting off with a texas woman that has been arrested after allegedly trying to buy another woman's child five hundred thousand at walmart crazy crazy title for a story a texas woman has been arrested last week after allegedly attempting to buy a woman's child at a Walmart store, police there. Rebecca Lynette Taylor, 49, was arrested Tuesday and charged with sale or purchase of a child, a third-degree felony according to jail records. Taylor allegedly approached a woman who had a baby in a car seat and, one young, and a one-year-old son in a shopping cart at the self-checkout section of a Walmart in Crockett about 120 miles north of Houston, on January 13th. Taylor allegedly commented on the woman's son's blonde hair and blue eyes. Well, we can tell the theme that they're going for, which is already bloody creepy. And then asked how much she could purchase him for, which is even more bloody creepier, according to a probable cause affidavit obtained by NBC News. The mum tried to laugh this comment off, thinking Taylor was joking, which... I think that she didn't laugh it off because she thought she was joking. I think she laughed it off because when you hear something so absurd, your brain can't comprehend it. So often your response to that is to laugh. But no, Taylor told her that she had $250,000 in her car and she would pay that much for him. The mom told her no amount of money would do, the affidavit stated. The mother told Taylor to stay away from her son. As any sane person would, Taylor said that she was the perfect fit, say that he was the perfect fit, and she'd been wanting to buy a baby for a long time now. Again, bloody creepy. The mother told police that Taylor was with another woman who asked what the child's name was, but the mother did not disclose the name. Somehow, the affidavit says, Taylor and the other woman knew the child's name, and they began calling him by his name. So I have some theories on this, which I'll get to at the end. The mother waited for two women to leave the store before heading towards the car. But in the parking lot, Taylor allegedly began to scream at the mother, saying if she wouldn't take 250000 for him, then she would give 500000 because she wanted him and she was going to take him, the affidavit stated. Once in the car, Taylor stood behind a black SUV next to the mother's vehicle. Taylor kept saying she wanted a child and would pay 500000 in cash for him, the affidavit stated. Eventually, she got into a black SUV and left. Police said to find footage from the store match the mother's account. The officer who wrote the affidavit went to Taylor's residence to question her about the incident. She told me that she didn't like thieves. She doesn't like thieves? Then she stated I could speak with her attorney and to get off her precipice. She slammed the door shut, the affidavit said. Precipice? Fuck! According to jail records, as of Thursday, she had been bonded out of Houston County Jail. Efforts by NBC News to reach Taylor for comment have not been immediately successful, and it was not clear if she had returned an attorney. An attorney, sorry. If convicted, she faces a maximum of two years in jail, and a, sorry, a minimum of two years in jail, and a maximum of ten years under Texas Penal Code, and could face a fine of up to ten thousand dollars. Now, I have some theories about this. Number one, I think that they have been stalking this family for a while, if they know the child's name. I don't think this was a random encounter. I think they specifically wanted that child because he had blonde hair and blue eyes and they became obsessed with it. And I think that's what happened in this situation. 
That must have been horribly scary for that mother, though. That must have been horribly scary for that mother going through this, dealing with this. That's got to be scary when someone knows your child's name and saying that they're going to take him or that they're going to give you money or they're going to take him. Scary, scary, scary. This next story comes from Wisconsin Public Radio. Theater Care loses court fight to keep healthcare staff who resigned. So this is a bit of a really stupid one, to be honest. Um, If people resign, you can't force them to work for you. Jesus, that is so stupid. Like, if that... That's literally slavery. To be like, you will work for us no matter what. But let's get into the story properly and fully. So a hospital in northeastern Wisconsin has lost a court battle to keep healthcare staff who wanted to work elsewhere. On Monday, Otagami County Circuit Court Judge Mark McGuinness held a hearing on a case that involves staff who were part of theater care's radiology and cardiovascular team, deciding the employer can't force workers who would reside to stay until replacements were hired. So basically that was what theater care wanted. They wanted to force the staff to work for them until they could find replacements, if they ever find replacements. So the civil case between theater care and Central Wisconsin comes at a time when health professionals are in great demand across the U.S. Attorneys for Ascension argued in court Monday that theater care has known for weeks the employees were resigning and should have prepared for that instead of responding with a frantic last-minute lawsuit. And essentially, that's what this was. This was a frantic last-minute lawsuit to try and force people to work for you when they don't want to anymore, when they've resigned. So just days before, seven former employees of theater care would start new jobs at Ascension St. Elizabeth Hospital in Appleton. Judge McGinnis had temporarily blocked the move until a new court hearing could be held and theater care could find replacement staff at theater care regional medical center in Nina. In arguing for temporary injunction, lawyers for theater care said the facility will not have adequate staffing to treat trauma and stroke victims, some of whom would die as a result of the lack of timely care. However, they had known for weeks this was happening, so they simply didn't get staff. It gets worse, though, because when you see the reality of it, you'll be like, well, it's their own fault. So workforce has the distressed healthcare system, blah, blah, blah. Ascension said in a statement that they did not initiate the theater care employees, but rather seven people had applied to open job postings. So basically, here is what happens. It is essential Wisconsin's understanding that the theater care had an opportunity but declined to make competitive counter offices counter offers to retain its former employees. Its spokesman for Ascension wrote in an email. So essentially, they knew that these staff were resigning, and rather than making a better offer, they offered them nothing, which to me is absolutely absurd. You offer them nothing, and then as they're about to start their new job, you sue them to try and force them to work for you indefinitely until you can find replacements that you're not going to find because you're not offering competitive positions. A former theater care employee, Timothy Breister, told the court that one member of our team received an outstanding officer not offer, not just in pay, but also a better work-life balance, which in turn caused the rest of us to apply, and that no matching offers were made the seven resigned from their position shortly thereafter on December 29th, Breister said. So they're known for an entire month that these people were resigning, they didn't try and retain them, and then they tried to stop them working for the new employers. That is the state of capitalism in America. It's disgusting. The employees at Question were all at will. That means their employees free to leave a job, just as an employer is able to terminate an employee for any reason as long as it's legal. Theater care officials didn't respond to requests for comment on the case Monday, 
which was first reported by Appleton Paul's president. It said, the broad case in which Fear the Care argues that essentially inappropriately group recruited employees will go forward in court. So essentially, they still try to sue these employees and the employer and get something out of it. But the reality is, it looks like it's, it's a non-case. They screwed up. Their staff, this is what often happens. Staff will get treated like shit by an employer. Then one of them will make the decision to leave and they'll apply for another job. And they'll get an offer from that job that is substantially better than what they're receiving now. And they'll let people know at work. They'll be like, I'm leaving, guys. I applied for another job. This is the job I got, and they're offering me this, so I'm not saying I have had enough of being here. And then the colleagues and friends that they work with will look at it and go, well, I'm getting worse as well. And they'll look, and they'll go, wow, there's still job openings, and they'll make the switch as well. When you know there's greener pastures, where there's better lifestyle, where there's better wages, where there's better work conditions, why would you stay at the place that is worse? You, you would only do that. You'd only stay working for less money at somewhere and worse hours if the place actually valued you if the staff were friendly if management was caring right nobody works for less money and more hours at a place that they don't care about right and you have to make your employees care about the workplace and it's clear that fear the care doesn't do that they don't make their employees care about the workplace they don't make it an inviting environment where they want to work it sounds like these staff are overworked and underpaid and they don't want to do it anymore. They want to go work somewhere else where they can actually have a life and feel like they're valued. And that's good on them. And I really hope that these staff um, have a better future at the place that they've gone to. Moving on to WAF. 48 on your side. I don't know what that is. This is somewhere. Birmingham, Alabama, apparently. Federal judges order Alabama to redraw congressional maps. So yeah, Alabama's being its uh, same old self. So, for those that don't know who live in different systems, America and the UK used first-past-the-post system. What this means is that the nation is split up into sections. People vote in these sections, and based off those votes, someone is elected to Congress, or to the Senate, into government, blah, 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 right? Sounds simple. Problem is, these can be redistributed, rezoned, and basically the idea behind it is one party will rezone a state or area and make it so votes of certain groups of people are less valuable because they'll stack it in such a way where it will break up marginalized groups so they don't have a large percentage of a vote in a specific place and therefore it effectively make their vote worth less. Now, I just want to say that in the first-past-the-post system, everyone's vote is automatically worth less. It just is. Because you can get a majority of seats um, in government with less than 50% of the vote, right? More people can vote for the other party, but yet a party with less votes will win because of the way the zones are regulated, right? To me, that's wrong, but that's a different story for another day. Now that we've explained what the first-past-the-post system is, you'll understand this better in some ways. So a three-judge by federal panel is rejected Alabama's newly drawn congressional district map and sending it back to a legislator saying it likely violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The three-judge panel ruled in favour of plaintiffs who argue new voting map underrepresents minority voters and says the state legislature needs to redraw the map by February 11th with two districts in which black voters either comprise a voting age majority or something close to it. 
See the point? They try to make it so there isn't enough people always set group to vote. And it's not just done with black people. It is done on many levels. It's basically where any significant minority, you know, Hispanic community, Asian community, whatever the community is, lines will be drawn up in a way to make it so their votes are worth less than, you know, that of white people. And this is what people mean when they talk about systemic racism. Because it's, 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 it's literally stuff like this. But um, that's a whole story for a different time and very politically charged. But I just basically wanted to point out that this happens to a lot of groups of people. It'll even happen within the um, white community as well. Um, if there's a select group of people that they don't particularly want to have an influence, then they can try and break up their vote as well. Very dodgy, it's shady, it's disgusting, and it's why I don't like this system. The ruling also delays January 28th, qualifying deadline for congressional candidates, a direct secretary of state, John Merrill, not to conduct congressional elections based on the plan approved by the legislature last fall. The judges say plaintiffs are likely to prove black voters have less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress. Lawmakers met in Montgomery on October of 2021 to redraw the congressional district map during a special legislative session. During that special session, Democrats and advocacy groups pushed for another majority-minority district to be drawn in Alabama. Three-judge panel made up of one Clinton and two Trump appointees ordered the state legislature to notify the court if it can't pass newly drawn up map by February 11th. If it can't, the court says it will hire an eminently qualified expert to draw on an expedited, sorry, yeah, expedited basis, a map that complies with federal law for use in Alabama's 2022 congressional elections. When reached out to, Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill comment, a spokesperson said his office couldn't comment on pending litigation. So yeah, you can see how it goes. You can see the plan. You can see what they were trying to do. And the judges rejected it. And the judges have basically said, hey, do this the right way. Because if you don't do it the right way, well, we'll just hire an expert that can do it exactly to the letter of the law, which isn't hard to do. And they'll just go, hmm, we'll do it by the letter of the law. And they definitely won't like that because it will be a lot fairer than they want it to be. That's for certain. It will be a lot fairer than they want it to be. So we are moving on to the final story of the day, which comes from AP News. And this one is very, very, very disturbing. Um, video shows struggle that preceded restrained teens' death. And I want to talk about this one last because there's a little bit more to it. So surveillance has shown that a black 17-year-old struggling with staff at a Wichita juvenile centre last fall before he died after he was restrained face down for more than 30 minutes. So this is essentially what killed him, being restrained face down for more than 30 minutes. And we're going to get into that towards the end of this a little bit more. Sedgwick County released uh, 18 video clips last Friday of what happened before Cedric Lofton was rushed to a hospital on September 24th. He died two days later. Release of the clips followed Sedgwick County District. Attorney Mark Bennett's announcement Tuesday that the state's standard ground law prevented him from pressing charges because staff members were protecting themselves. So, yeah, standard ground laws are very, very stupid. Or at least I say the concept isn't stupid, but the ability to abuse them is, and they should be 
well, really, you should just have self-defense laws, right? It's not hard to use current self-defense. Basically, if someone attacks you, you have the right to defend yourself. That's, that's simple enough, right? Stand your ground laws offer too much protection. For any way, because it's stand your ground law, he couldn't um, do anything with charge against them. And he also was considering an involuntary manslaughter charge, but he couldn't justify it because of the way it would look legally. And yeah, the county's webpage crashed after the video was posted, making it temporarily inaccessible. But it was back up late Saturday afternoon. The hours of footage didn't include audio. One video shows several officers carrying Lofton into Sedgwick County Juvenile Intake and Assessment Center while restraint is something called the wrap. A device comprised of a locking shoulder harness, leg restraints, and ankle straps. The sheriff's police, the sheriff's officer describes it as a way to restrain a person who is out of control so that they do not hurt themselves or others. According to Bennett's report, Lofton had become paranoid and was hallucinating. His foster father said the situation got worse after the teen attended his grandmother's funeral. So it's clear this guy was having a mental health break, honestly, right? At a foster official's urging, the foster father drove Lofton to a mental health provider. But he walked away, which I don't understand what happened at this point, right? I don't understand how he walked away, right? Um, he should have been checked in. He's not 18, so the foster parent could have checked him in. So I don't know why he wasn't checked in and taken to, you know, be assessed and put in a safe place, right? That seems to be the thing that makes the least sense in this. When Lofton returned home, foster officials told the foster father to call police which, well, obviously, it turned out to be a terrible idea. But 5 foot 10, 135 pound, Lofton resisted the officers who responded to the home, assaulting at least one of them, Bennett's report said. The rapper was removed at the juvenile intake centre, according to Bennett's report. And on the street, Lofton walked out of his holding cell and then tried to grab a computer monitor from the intake counter. The video shows him resisting attempts to place him back in the holding cell. At one point, he could be seen punching one of the juvenile detention employees in the head. I don't even know if this guy knew what was going on. You'll see in a second why. The video shows detention workers wrestling him into the wood cell and my employees showing up to help. Best report said staff shackled Lofton's ankles and put him on his stomach on the floor. His report said Cedric was mumbling at times, repeated that he was Jesus, and saying the staff should kill themselves and that he would hex them. Staff noticed he wasn't breathing after they called to arrange for Lofton to be taken to a hospital for a mental health evaluation. Well, this is what should have happened from the start. He should have been taken to hospital. He shouldn't have been taken to this juvenile detention centre. It's clear that this guy was having mental health issues. It is clear from the foster father that he gave evidence that the person was having mental health issues. The way America's treatment of health in these situations is absolutely shocking. He should have been taken by mental health professionals to a safe place where he can't harm himself and others, where he is kept safe in a manner that is humane, in a way that is safe physically, and in a way that is safe mentally. This isn't what happened. Eventually, the video appears to draw workers, flip lofted onto his back and start CPR. This guy was on his back, so he was laid on his stomach, restrained, hands and feet restrained, on his stomach, unable to move for 30 minutes. Now, this is a big major breach in police procedure. And we're going to talk about this. So, positional asphyxia, also known as postural asphyxia, is a form of asphyxia which occurs when someone's provision prevents them from breathing adequately. People may die from positional asphyxia accidentally when the mouth or nose are blocked. 
or when the chest may be unable to fully expand. So the New York Police Department's guidelines explaining protocols for mitigating in-custody deaths was published in 1995 Department of Justice Bulletin on positional asphyxia. The NYPD recommended that as soon as the subject is handcuffed, get him off his stomach, turn him on his side, or place him in a seated position. A 1996 FBI bulletin said that many law enforcement health personnel were being taught to avoid restraining people face down or to do so only for a very short period of time. That is important, and this is why I wanted to mention this. Because if you leave people on their front, you can't breathe, right? It's not the same as you laying on your stomach. When you lay on your front, your arms are free and you can move, right? You can lift your head up, you can breathe freely, you can move around, you can turn to the side, you can do all these things. This child, this 17-year-old boy, could not, this 17-year-old young man, sorry, could not. He was restrained on his stomach for 30 minutes. And this is just not what you do in these situations. You're not meant to do that. That's not the way you handle it. And it is, frankly, um, very, very sad. Anyways, guys, let me know what you think of all this stuff in the video today. Like, comment, share, and subscribe. I will see you guys in the next one. Thank you for watching. I appreciate it. And peace out, guys.